0: In February this year, Russia launched a brutal war of aggression against its neighbour, Ukraine, with a view to occupying a large part of the country and forcing regime change. That initial aim has clearly failed, and now Putin is mired in a grinding war of attrition. His Russian world ideology was supposed to unite the Russian-speaking world into a new post-Soviet empire, but instead has bought only theft, destruction, rape, deportations, torture, and murder to Ukraine. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the topics we cover, then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos on YouTube. And please share the links to the videos with anyone you think may be interested in our incredible speakers. David DeBatto is a geopolitical analyst, writer and podcaster. He is a retired US Army counterintelligence special agent and Iraq war veteran. He served as team leader of a tactical human intelligence team in operations within Iraq and is also a former police officer. David is considered too conservative for the progressive left and too independent minded for the radical right, which may suggest he's getting the balance about right. Either way, David is a controversialist of sorts, often irreverent, always passionate, and seeks to challenge political dogma and the naked self-interest of certain politicians. He has strong pro-science and pro-education credentials and condemns the encroachment on society of irrational, violent, and dangerous conspiracy theories. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you are writing extensively on the Ukraine war and on Russians' actions uh, via social media. What prompts you to be so engaged and active on this topic?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I've studied Russia for a very long time. Um, going back to my, my military days, I just had an interest in, in that part of the world. Uh, obviously, when I was growing up, we had the Soviet Union, and so I, I was very interested in that. Eastern Europe, I became kind of a, a specialist in that area while I was in the, uh, in the army, and afterwards, I continued that uh, that interest. So I, I traveled when it was still allowed to uh, travel into uh, what is now Russia, Eastern Europe, Ukraine. I developed many, many uh, friends in that area. In fact, when I was stationed in Iraq during the war, there was a uh, Ukrainian medical unit there, kind of a mash unit. And I met many uh, Ukrainian doctors and nurses, some of whom I've kept in touch with, uh, since that time, so I, I have a lot of uh, what I consider very close friends. Oddly enough, both in Ukraine and in Russia, from uh, when I, I I traveled there uh, very many times. So I have a very personal connection to both countries, and this this conflict has has really uh, torn me apart.
0: Absolutely understandable. It's divided uh, families as well, hasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if you've read any of my posts, uh, you'll see that I, I delve into that topic quite a bit. Uh, there's uh, there's just heartache on both sides of this. As you may, may know, uh, many, many Russian families have relatives in Ukraine and, and vice versa. And, and that's been that way for hundreds of years. So this is kind of like our civil war, and I mean that loosely, it's not exactly the same thing, but what I mean is it's brother versus brother, father versus son, and it's really torn some families apart, so it's a a really incredible dynamic.
0: And with the forceful statements that you just alluded to there that you make on platforms like LinkedIn, I'm guessing you get trolled a lot by Russian bots, by useful idiots, and so-called fellow travelers.
1: Yes, I'm very popular among those groups. Um, I've I've received some uh, some incredible uh, blowback, and and at first I, I was not surprised, but a, a little taken aback at the uh, the ferocity of some of the uh, of some of the comments. But then I realized uh, almost immediately that many of them were, were bots, uh, and uh, some of them were paid or even unpaid, as you would say, useful idiots. Uh, who just do this for a variety of different reasons? So I, I learned very early on on social media to to just block them. Uh, early on, I did used to engage them for for a variety of reasons. That got very old, very tiring, and so I just blocked them, and I I, I don't usually engage them at all anymore. And that saved a lot of stress,
0: a lot a lot of energy, and a lot of stress and a lot of time. I imagine uh, you can't can fight the bots. No. So let's turn to Ukraine, Um, and this is an extremely hypothetical question. At what point will or may Putin seek a negotiated settlement over Ukraine? And what will it take to force him to negotiate? You know, might the use of the HIMARS weapon system and the massive loss of Russian supplies and fighting capacity that they're now enduring because of that Western technology, you know, could this be the first sign of the tide turning? Uh, and is this the way to get Putin to, to talk?
1: Well, of course, that's the question everyone asks, and, and they should. And I, I guess I'll echo a little bit of what Zelensky is saying. Uh, there's there's three answers to that question. Weapons, weapons, and weapons. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be simplistic or silly. Uh, the only way that Putin is going to back down, the only way he's going to even think about Uh, a negotiated settlement of some kinds as if he feels a military defeat, period. End of story, full stop. Um, The economic sanctions, although they're absolutely necessary and we need to increase them greatly, are not going to stop Putin. And there's a really good reason for that. Not only does Putin not care, he's a a billionaire who's siphoned off uh, billions from the Russian economy, he's not going to be hurt. But the uh, the Russian people historically have an incredible capacity for pain uh, for taking whatever the outside world inflicts upon them and and uh, get, rallying around the flag as we're seeing now, and just accepting whatever happens. So the economic sanctions eventually may influence uh, decision making in Russia, but not for a very long time. The only thing that's going to uh, make, force Putin to negotiate a peace settlement or any kind of settlement in Ukraine are weapons. You mentioned the HIMARS system. Absolutely. Uh, we're already seeing the effects of that. In fact, there was an intercepted uh, message from Ukrainian intelligence just a few days ago about uh, uh, Russian officers lamenting the HIMARS being put into place. And uh, how many units, how many uh, uh, people that they're, they're, uh, they're losing, command and control centers, their own artillery, uh, their own officers, and, and how, how bad that's going to be should Ukraine get more of these uh, systems in place. And that's one of the problems, Jonathan. There's only, well, America's only supplied eight of them. I think four are there, four are on their way. Uh, Europe has supplied some similar systems. They need at minimum three to four hundred by Ukraine's own estimates. And right now they've got maybe a dozen uh, or so. So yes, that's going to be a game changer. But I guess the long way to answer your question is a military defeat. The only way that Putin is going to change, the only reason that he's going to negotiate any kind of a settlement is if he feels his life is in danger and his life will be in danger only if there is a military defeat on the battlefield. That does
0: seem to be the case, doesn't it? That uh, the elite are not going to move unless Putin is uh, mortally weakened politically and strategically. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, the Russian people can take an awful lot, uh, which in this instance is part of the tragedy here. If they were a little less tolerant uh, of these losses and hardship, then uh, they probably would not have tolerated Putin for so long in this war. The war was supposed to be over in three days. We're now weeks and... Weeks into this conflict, aren't we?
1: Well, the thing of it is, Jonathan, you also have to remember that Putin is—he's an evil guy, but he's not stupid. What he's been doing is he's been taking uh, draftees and conscripts, rather, and uh, volunteers from the very rural sections of 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 Russia, from the Far East, from near the, the Chinese border, from from hundreds or thousands of kilometers from Moscow. Uh, and really ignoring the uh, population centers of Moscow and St. Petersburg. Why? Because the people in those rural areas are are poor, and they're the most likely to want to volunteer for military service because they need the money. Uh, The people in Moscow and St. Petersburg, not all, but far more of them, Uh, are not liberal, I'll say, but they're aware of the situation. They're more apt to listen to uh, social media, use VPNs to get on the internet, and know what's really going on. So they don't want to send their sons to Ukraine to be cannon fodder. So he's staying away from sending units, military units, that are stationed in and around St. Petersburg and Moscow, and concentrating on sending people from the far-flung areas, the most poverty-stricken areas of Russia. So No, there hasn't been a big outcry, because to be honest, people in Moscow and St. Petersburg, they don't feel anything. In fact, the McDonald's uh, that closed there has been taken over by a Russian company. Uh, Now they're still providing Big Macs and French fries of lesser quality, and they've renamed everything. But the Moscow people are still getting their fix of McDonald's. So that's just an example of how little it's affected the, the richest and most educated people in Russia. And until they do feel anything, they're going to continue to support the war.
0: And of course, uh, those Russians who are tuned into the political situation, hundreds of thousands of them have actually fled the country, uh, which is obviously getting far less press than fleeing Ukrainians, which is understandable. But there are now huge swathes of that proto-middle class uh, living in Turkey, Georgia, Armenia, all over the place. Uh, yes. And the rich echelons have gone to to obviously Dubai and uh, those places which they can afford. So in some ways, those that are more prone to be critics of uh, Putin, um, they've chosen to run, haven't they?
1: Well, you've got, yeah, exactly uh, what you just said is true. There are, by any estimates, uh, hundreds of thousands of the best and brightest of Russians who have fled the country since 24 February. But you also have to understand uh, that there's many Russians, and we don't have exact figures, that are in prison for protesting the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, as you're aware, Putin put a new law in place shortly after the invasion that even mentioning the word war or invasion is now a felony. Uh, disparaging the army, which could mean almost anything, is uh, uh, pub- punishable by up to 15 years in a penal colony. Uh, not to mention that many of the opposition have flat out been killed been assassinated, and those stories are flying under the radar. Uh, so you've got hundreds of thousands of the best and brightest who have fled the country. You've got thousands who are in prison and an unknown number who are, who are dead. And so the uh, uh, people that are left in Russia right now, even if they do oppose the war, are scared. Um, who, who would blame them? Who's going to uh, risk their neck to be either uh, uh, shot, uh, uh, beaten, tortured, or put into prison? So right now, you've got uh, a Russian population that is all for the war, either really or in silence. Uh, It's going to take an awful lot to get to those people.
0: So this war obviously uh, has uh, taken both the West a little by surprise in that the intelligence predicted that it was going to happen. But we believed the capitulation was going to be pretty swift. Uh, And the Russians believed the same. So why was the assessment that Ukraine would fall so quickly so very, very wrong uh, by Western analysts? And and how did we fail to understand uh, these deep-seated weaknesses of the Russian army?
1: It's a great question, one that's been asked a lot, of course. And uh, I've gotten into trouble answering this question before. And so I'll step right in and get into trouble again. Uh, The reason, in my opinion, is because we lack human intelligence, meaning spies, bodies in Russia, in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, people to actually get into the minds of the Russian military, the Russian intelligence, the Russian uh, uh, officials, and to find out exactly not only what they're putting out in propaganda, but what is really happening uh, in America and to a a lesser extent in in Europe as well, NATO and, and the EU. We've relied for too many years on electronic intercepts on on satellites and and, uh, very sophisticated uh, electronic gadgetry, I'll call it, all of which is necessary, all of which have played a huge role in intelligence collection. But we've gotten away from human intelligence, which is my background, uh, old fashioned spying. And you cannot get into the mind of a person through a satellite or an electronic intercept. You can only get so much this was the reason uh, bin Laden survived for so long. They they didn't use cell phones because they knew that. They used uh, couriers, personal couriers. And we didn't have enough human intelligence spies within that circle to actually get to him for many years. And the same thing happened, in my opinion, with the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. We built the Russian uh, military up so high that they were 10 feet tall and, and unbeatable with just uh, unsurpassed, sophisticated weaponry, when in fact it was what it's always been. It, it's a cesspool of corruption. And uh, the, uh, the the defense industry over there, the generals, the intelligence people, were just siphoning money right off the top, starting from Putin on down. So what they had was, was, a, was a paper tiger. But unless we had people actually there seeing that, Uh, And we dismantled our our CIA capability, our human intelligence capability in Russia over many, many years, not just recently. We just didn't know that. And what's happening today is the price that we're paying for that lack of human intelligence.
0: And did that process of dismantling start in the 90s? I mean, for instance, I studied Russian in the 90s, and it was just at the point where British universities were being defunded. Their Russian departments were being defunded because traditionally through the 50s, 60s and 70s, they got money from uh, the Ministry of Defense or at least, you know, some kind of co-funded money there. That all disappeared in the 90s. And as a result, there were far fewer people uh, becoming, uh, you know, Russian speakers. And of course, there are almost no jobs in the intelligence sphere for Russian speakers at that time.
1: No, this started a long time ago. I wrote an article, um, Well, it must be almost two years ago, about this, this topic. And I was uh, roundly slammed by the, the American intelligence community uh, because I said that the dearth of, of human intelligence is, is, is crippling us, is crippling our, our uh, national security efforts. And I even posited the idea that it went back all the way into the 60s, starting with the wind down uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, after that, America, at least, and, and probably to to a, uh, an extent, uh, Great Britain and, and Europe uh, started pulling away from human intelligence and putting their uh, R&D funds, their research and development funds into electronic interceptions, intercepts, uh, satellites and, and, and all kinds of uh, James Bond type of wizardry, which again, I'm a fan of, but they took most of the money out of human intelligence, they gutted it. And you mentioned the foreign language uh, area. I've been complaining about that since the 70s, uh, the fact that we we have so few speakers. And again, I'm talking about the United States specifically. Uh, even back then, that spoke Russian, that spoke Chinese, Asian languages, which are very difficult for English speakers. We, we just didn't have them. A quick story. When I was in Iraq, uh, we had so few uh, American military uh, Arabics that we were forced to hire local Arabic translators, Iraqi translators, to translate for the army. And as a counterintelligence agent, I looked very uh, askance at that. That was not a good thing for me to be having a local translator who was not properly vetted, in my opinion, translate for uh, American intelligence in Iraq fighting their own neighbors. That's how bad it was, even though we have a defense Uh, Language Institute, of which I'm a graduate. Uh, And for years, they knew we had problems with Russia, obviously, with China, and then with the Middle East. And they didn't push through graduates uh, to deal with that and to to speak those foreign languages. To me, that's that's a travesty. And it goes hand in hand with our lack of human intelligence. On the one hand, you have that
0: intelligence deficit, that lack of people on the ground telling you what the reality is like. On the other hand, we notice this in the media, don't we, that there's this uh, attempt to look at everything that happens through a Western lens, to translate it with a frame of reference to our own societies, our own political institutions. And in many ways, Putin's benefited from this, hasn't he? We've normalized him to the point of uh, not seeing what's really going on there. And, and those few Russian dissidents like Khodorkovsky, who've been for years saying, look, this guy is a, is a terrorist, and that's how you have to treat him. They've kind of been ignored and and bypassed.
1: No, that's that's a great point. Um, the the American, or at least the Western media, seems to be following the the uh, the intelligence services and the military. We're pulling back from making personal contacts, personal relationships, which, in my opinion, is what journalism is all about—at least a good part of it. Uh, they should be developing contacts. Uh, how how could they uh, really get to the bottom of stories if they're just repeating what the government says? Uh, or, or, or just going on second or third, third hand. I've always had a pet peeve about this in America that the uh, American journalists always go to the top generals, for example, to get the uh, the the uh, the word about any operation. And in my opinion, for many many years, the generals are the cl- most clueless. They are so far away from what's really going on on the ground and what the uh, the strategy is, or certainly what the tactical situation is they would they should be the last people that that are uh, spoken to but again the journalists haven't developed any contacts with anybody else other than say the pentagon the white house and some of the top generals joint chiefs of staff and so forth so that's who they go to and do you think those people are going to give an honest assessment of what's going on on the ground no they're not and that's what they feed to the american and, and the british and the european public uh, so, no, journalism, mainstream journalism has let us down for for many, many years. And I actually understand how many people on both the left and the right uh, no longer trust the media. And a lot of it's their own fault. And of
0: course, uh, you know, those guys at the top are probably, you know, exceptional communicators. So they're able to paper over their lack of knowledge in certain areas with quite you know compelling stories. And I've seen this on uh, MSNBC, for instance, quite a lot. I think there's a there's a huge cachet, isn't there? And the uh, the the people who run those shows get a real thrill from talking to the the top brass. So it's 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 not just, you know, um, about ratings and so on. I think also personally, they get a bit of a thrill from from speaking to these sort of five star generals and people.
1: Oh, absolutely! It, it's all part of the uh, the good old boy syndrome, a good old girl syndrome now, where they love roving elbows with admirals and, and and generals and the director of the CIA and and the director of the FBI and and so forth and so on, or the White House spokespersons. Um, but th- that's not the real story. I used to say that when you reach the level in the military of of colonel, you're you're a politician. <laughs> you're not to be trusted because you're looking at your first star to become a general, and therefore, you've sold your soul. Not in every instance, of course, but in my experience, to a great degree. So those people are all spouting the party line. You're not going to get an honest assessment of what's really going on. You've got to talk to the lower ranks. Uh, The same thing with, with, I don't care if it's law enforcement, if it's the intelligence services, it's the State Department or Foreign Service Office. You've got to talk to the rank and file, the people that actually do the work. And reporters don't want to do that. It's boring. It's not exciting. It's not sexy to talk to a person on the street or an agent or or a sergeant or or someone. It's just not, not very sexy. And they don't uh, invite you to cocktail parties in, in D.C. or Berlin. And so they don't talk to these people. And I tell you, we're losing a lot. And we're seeing that loss right now in Ukraine. And I guess Russia has a
0: similar problem, but for the very different reasons. They also were getting the wrong information from their people on the ground in Ukraine. They were paying a vast amount of officials uh, to roll over when the invasion came. They were paying off a huge number of entrepreneurs, uh, government operatives, and one would assume a lot of people in the Secret Service establishment as well. That didn't work out so well, did it? Because they just received again, information that they wanted to hear it reinforced their point of view and yet i think a point you've made in one of your posts is ukraine has become increasingly ukrainified in recent years um and this is something the russian officials analysts have completely missed they don't bother to learn ukrainian they don't bother to dig beneath their bribed contacts to find out what's really going on do they
1: no, no, it's a great point. Um, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that Russia has thus far failed uh, dramatically in Ukraine is the lack of intelligence caused by the incredible amount of corruption at all levels in Russia. And I can't stress that enough, how corrupt Russia is. It always has been going back hundreds of years. But under Putin, it's, he's taken it to a new level. And this, this has to do with uh, uh, the FSB, the intelligence services, uh, law enforcement, certainly the military, and importantly, defense contractors. Uh, they've just siphoned money right off the top, taking their cue from Putin. And if they say that this, this weapon system is, is just incredible and 100 percent, they will uh, issue any reports they think Putin needs to see about how effective and how efficient it is and how it's going to defeat any similar uh, NATO or Western systems, when in fact it's nonsense. Um, they, they've uh, stolen 90 percent of the money. Uh, that's now coming out. Uh, the same with the intelligence services, as, as you uh, mentioned. They told Putin whatever he wanted to hear. It's a very much of a, a yes man, yes sir type of a situation. They are actually afraid to tell him bad news, and they have for a very long time. Uh, and so they fed him just completely wild, delusional uh, information about Ukraine, not not having a clue about what was really going on there. And they, you know, paid the price. They they had a very rude awakening starting on, on 24 February.
0: And uh, I mean, another interesting point, isn't it, that now that there is such a huge, uh, maybe not quantity, but a huge range of equipment being uh, pumped into Ukraine, um that uh, there's now this incredible variety of of different equipment types that the Ukrainian army is actually using, from captured Russian kit to a vast array of systems from the US and Europe. How on earth do Ukrainians cope with that much complexity, thinking of all the different spare parts, you know, manuals, even languages, types of ammo that, that all this equipment requires?
1: And again, another really good question. And it's one of the other points, uh, some of which we've just made. We, the West, have greatly underestimated the uh, abilities of the Ukrainians, not just in uh, the military, but at all levels of, of their society. They've come a very, very long way in a very, very short period of time. You have to understand that the West, specifically uh, the United States, I'll have to say, since uh, especially 2014, when uh, Russia uh, annexed, uh, illegally annexed Crimea and went into, uh, into the Donbass, we have been providing an incredible amount of training for the Ukrainians at all levels, at all levels, not just military, law enforcement, uh, intelligence services, uh, governance. Uh, we have just had thousands of our experts over there for, what is it, eight years now. And they've had just soaked it up like a sponge. Thousands of Ukrainians have gone to military schools here in the States and and also in Great Britain, I know, and in uh, other nations in in Europe, the NATO nations. So their ability to soak up this information, to retain it, to use it in a much shorter period of time than we thought possible uh, is, is showing now, is just telling. So. Uh, the excuses about, oh, we can't send these uh, advanced weapon systems there. Uh, They're they're not going to know how to use them, or it's going to take them months or years uh, to train on these things was was utter nonsense. I said that from the beginning. Many uh, Western generals uh, have said the same thing. They were just angry about that. It was a political move for a whole host of reasons. Uh, They didn't want to send the advanced weaponry over to Ukraine in order not to provoke Putin. Uh, But that's been shown to be a fallacy, uh, the whole provoke Putin thing, which is another issue, but also the fact that uh, Ukrainians couldn't possibly uh, train and use this in a short period of time. Wrong, they are, and they will in the future. We need to send a lot more.
0: And I think that's one of the reasons I know Germany's come in for a lot of stick as well. I think part of it is they've insisted that the extensive training takes place on the equipment. Um, But in reality, you know, even with six months of training, that's a lot less time than they'd use to train their own forces, isn't it? Uh, I've heard figures of one to two years, which is more sort of standard training cycles on some of this advanced equipment. Uh,
1: Those are ideal circumstances. And in times of peace, yes, you can train someone on a weapon system for two years. Uh, You can train someone how to uh, shoot a rifle proficiently and take six months until he's an expert. In a time of war, this goes down to weeks. And it should. It should. Does that mean they're going to be expert? There's not going to be mistakes made? There's not going to be ammo uh, wasted and targets missed? Of course, that's going to happen. But this is a war. It's not only a war, Jonathan, it's a war for the survival of Ukraine, literally. And to be, excuse me, screwing around with saying what weapon systems we should or should not use because the Ukrainians are incapable of training on these in, in uh, an adequate period of time is just insulting, insulting to the Ukrainians. Uh, and it's nonsense. Yes, they can. In fact, I was one of the uh, first people to really shout about the fact that we should have been sending the, the MiGs and the, even the F-16s over to, uh, to Ukraine. They, they fly MiGs now. It's a very short leap to go from an older MiG to a newer MiG, not to mention that Ukrainian pilots have been training in the United States for years. And so if we sent over uh, MiGs, uh, MiG-29s, uh, the latest MiGs, uh, F-16s, F-15s to Ukraine, they could be taught to, to uh, fly those in a matter of weeks to months based on training they've already had. And if we had started this on 24 February, uh, we're five months into the war. Uh, just think how many of them would be trained and ready to fly these sorties with their uh, new MiGs and F-15s.
0: And the same is true of the uh, HIMARS system as well, isn't it? It's only come on stream in the last couple of weeks. Uh, they only have a few units, and we see some amazing pictures from the front. But, of course, once we've seen those social media clips, the equipment has already moved on to another location so that it can't be uh, you know, triangulated uh, and, and hit by the Russians. But what we're seeing is them taking out numerous uh, supply depots with extraordinary precision. As you say, if they had these systems trained up uh, four or five months ago, we'd have been looking at a very different scenario now, wouldn't we?
1: If we had uh, sent the Ukrainians the equipment that they needed, trained them up on the equipment they needed, not even on just uh, 24 February, Jonathan, we knew, at least the West knew, uh, Great Britain and the United States together. The intelligence was spot on prior to 24 February when the uh, Russians started amassing their troops starting late last year. If we had sent the uh, the Ukrainians, the material they needed, the weapon systems they needed, giving them the, uh, the training that they needed, I don't think we'd even be talking about a lot of this right now. I think the Russians would have been pushed back. Uh, they wouldn't have even made it to 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 the Donbass. They would have, but they would have been pushed back. And now we would be talking about possibly Putin thinking about uh, a settlement of some kind.
0: And, of course, that 40-mile convoy north of Kiev, very little of that would have uh, made it up through Belarus and, uh, and back into the east. Um, Absolutely.
1: Just think if that convoy that you saw, excuse me, was destroyed was utterly destroyed, like the, the the road of death, if you remember, back from Iraq, when America just totally obliterated um, all of the, uh, the uh, Iraqi armor and trucks and supply uh, vehicles that were sitting on the Kuwait line. Uh, that would have just obliterated it. I don't believe they would have recovered from that, certainly not for a very long time, uh, but we didn't do that and we're still not doing that. And here we are five months in, Ukraine still fighting for its life, and we're still not sending anywhere near the amount of logistics and weapon systems that they need.
0: And this could, of course, go into, I've heard people talk about end of the year, which is perhaps optimistic, going into next year and seeing Ukraine sort of push uh, Russia out of the territories that it invaded in the last eight years. That is a long time in a modern news cycle. How difficult is it to keep allies on the same page, you know, in their public statements and their positions for this length of time? And of course, it's gotta be noted that Russia will continuously look to leverage any divisions between the allies as well.
1: Absolutely, Um, it's very difficult. Uh, I I wrote a couple of articles about that recently and I'm very concerned about that. Uh, We're already starting to see the cracks in, uh, in the Western alliance, both here in, a, in the United States and certainly in uh, different countries within NATO and the EU. Uh, they're already uh, having Ukraine fatigue. And to me, this is just unbelievable. In Europe, they are on the front lines. What are they thinking? If they don't stop Putin in Ukraine, they will be next. There's any number of intelligence reports out there, and even in the mainstream press media, about the fact that Putin will not stop at Ukraine, especially if he's victorious. And these countries uh, in Eastern Europe, and maybe even further, are going to be next. And yet, they have Ukraine fatigue. To me, this is insane. But yes, we're starting to see it, certainly here in in the U.S., Uh, uh, politicians, especially on the Republican side, uh, are already starting uh, to talk about pulling our our resources back, that we need to look at our own problems here, uh, the old uh, saw about why should we worry about a country on the other side of the world. Uh, and so, yes, that's a real problem. Putin has always leveraged any cracks he could within NATO and the Western Alliance. He's uh, doubling down on that now. I can only imagine how uh, you know the people that he's got in, in those countries uh intelligence operatives are just working overtime on this. And in many uh, instances, they're, they're succeeding. And, and if we allow that to happen, uh, it's it's a catastrophe. We, we, we just can't. But we, we will see more Ukraine fatigue. And I just pray that the West is able to hold it together enough to see this through. But to be honest, I have my doubts. And I'm really going to sort of pick up on one of the points
0: you mentioned there, especially around the sort of GOP Uh, and a lot of the politics we've seen over the last couple of years, extremely divisive politics. What's the greatest threat, do you think, for supporting Ukraine in the U.S.? Does it come from the radical left, or actually is the right a much bigger threat?
1: Well, I mean, you've got people on both sides, certainly, uh, in any country, but in in the United States as well, that are opposed to uh, constantly or greatly uh, uh, increasing our support for Ukraine. But I'll have to be brutally honest. No, it's the Republican Party. Uh, there's no question about that. They, they've they always been the America First Party. Uh, they really, uh, e- even though they're hawks on defense, it's hawks on the defense that they want. And so if they feel that there's any way to drive a wedge between the American people and the Democratic Party, they'll do it. And so to do that now would be to drive a wedge between American voters and supporting Ukraine. And so we're starting to see that pick up speed where uh, going into the midterm elections in this country, which are in November, they're already starting to say that we're giving too much money to Ukraine. We should be worrying about uh, what's going on here. Uh, Joe Biden is is a a weak president and his son has already uh, got business interest in Ukraine. That's why he's supporting Ukraine. We need to watch out for this. Um, no, it's it's totally 99% coming from the Republican side. And and it's not just that. Uh, and I've written about this before, but the, the Republican Party, the Republican voters, Republican officials, uh, militia groups, right-wing militia groups, very often take their talking points from Russian propaganda, directly from the Kremlin, sometimes knowingly, other times unwittingly. But it amounts to the same thing. Uh, Putin, the Kremlin, is, is able to get their talking points across to the American right wing. And it's been going on for a very long time. But of course, it, it really took off with the election of, of Donald Trump because of his, how shall I say, his, his relationship with, with Vladimir Putin and comparing America to Russia and saying that Russia's not that bad. We do the same thing. That just started a very downhill slide, Uh, and now many, many Americans on the right uh, have no problem at all with actually siding with Putin, with siding with Russia in their invasion of Ukraine. You will not hear anybody from the Democratic side side with Russia in the invasion of Ukraine. You will hear many Republicans, officials, elected officials, as well as voters uh, side with Russia against Ukraine. And that drumbeat is getting louder. And I fear it's going to be a huge problem here in the States in a in a very short time.
0: And Dara said there are some uh sort of Trump generation 2.0 kind of figures as well, aren't there? Uh, one can only think of Tucker Carlson, who has perhaps been the most obvious figure to uh Reinterpret Russian talking points, Kremlin talking points. Yeah, I
1: mean, Tucker Carlson has actually been featured many, many times on Russian uh, news on Channel One and RT, which are the main propaganda uh, media sites in in Russia, as being their boy. Uh, but as far as politicians, for example, you may be familiar with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is uh, a clone uh, of of uh, of Trump. He was a uh, uh, Trump's uh, Trump was a mentor to DeSantis. Now, DeSantis is thought to possibly be a front runner to uh eclipse Trump in the next democratic election, and he is far worse than trump uh meaning he is Trump, but Trump with brains he's far more dangerous, and he does not support Ukraine he does not support um uh, well he doesn't support many of the things that the Democrats support, and he supports everything that trump does so if he gets elected or another like him, uh, we're talking uh, a Cruz, uh, many of the other uh, people in, in the Republican sphere, if any of them get elected, it's going to be rough to continue the American support of Ukraine. Uh, I would see dark days ahead.
0: And to follow that theme, I think you've probably uh, already answered this question, but how far can we say that Trump uh, is a Russian asset, either incidentally or, or literally?
1: Well, no, I nobody could say for sure whether he's actually received uh, money from Putin or whether any of those hotel stories are true. But what I can say very certainly is that he is a Russian asset by actions. He's a Russian accent uh, asset by by words and deeds. He has done absolutely nothing, in my opinion to dissuade uh, Americans from disliking Putin. He's never, to my knowledge, criticized Putin. In fact, when the invasion just happened, he said that's genius. He used the word that's genius for Putin. I mean, what else do you need to say? Um, no, he he's a Russian asset uh, in in every way, w- without the possibility of maybe being handed a uh, a satchel full of, uh, of rubles.
0: Absolutely. And certainly, uh, even if he's not politically sophisticated enough to sort of, uh, you know, really understand how Russia works, um, he has a unbounded admiration for autocrats. I mean, that is absolutely clear, isn't it?
1: No, it is. From North it, Korea it, it, to many others. Absolutely. No, no, no. That's, that's exactly why he likes Putin. Putin is, is what Trump would like to be. But his government and that, that nasty constitution keeps uh, handcuffing him. Uh, From doing what he would like to do. Uh, No, he admires Putin greatly. He admires uh, North Korea greatly. Um, I believe he admires uh, Iran even uh, greatly. He certainly admires China, even though he has to put them down uh, publicly. No, he admires strongmen. And uh, if, and I know it's getting a little off the topic, but it has to do with Ukraine, if the Republican Party sweeps the midterm elections in November, If a a Republican becomes president in 2024, I believe our support for Ukraine will absolutely crater. And that would be an unbelievable catastrophe for the West.
0: Absolutely. I think uh, both analysts and the Western media tend to see things in isolation. So you had the invasion of Crimea. You had the invasion of the Donbass. You had the interference in the U.S. elections. You had, uh, to an extent, Russia pouring oil onto the fire of brexit uh and and the same in the yellow jacket protests in france uh, secessionist threats in spain they've been busy leveraging these kind of divisions and throwing petrol on flames throughout what do you think sure. i mean in putin's mind these things are all linked in our minds these are all separate events but he's fighting a war against the west and in his mind these are all strategies to to win
1: well, just remember what, uh, how disparaging Trump was towards NATO. If he had won a second term, I guarantee you, we would not be part of NATO right now. And if we were not part of NATO right now, what would have happened? What would be happening right now in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe? So if the Republicans sweep the uh, midterm elections and control the government, House and Senate, if a Republican wins the presidential race in 2024 and then controls the entire government, I would not be surprised. If another move is made to either pull out of NATO entirely or to greatly reduce our influence in in NATO and our support, and you know as well as I do, if the United States is not a part of NATO or does not support NATO, NATO is a hollow shell, and that's exactly what Putin wants. Uh, and what what that would do would be it would, it would absolutely just dis, uh, uh, dis, not dismantle, but it would uh, disorganize NATO to the point where there would be uh, uh, fractures, fractures that would just open up and it would be an unmitigated disaster, a disaster which Putin would just drive a truck through or a, a tank through, because that's exactly what he's been what he's been looking for. Uh, a NATO without America is. Uh, uh, Russia in the Baltics and Poland uh, very, very soon. And and there's no other way to say it. And one of the big talking
0: points, of course, in the last election was that uh, if Trump had been elected, uh, you know, there would be no Ukrainian war. Everything would be wonderful. I think I've been Mm -hmm. trying to convince people that it would be far, far worse. Putin really believed that Trump was going to elect it twice, the invasion plan was on the table and would have happened. And at this point, Ukraine quite possibly would be losing or would have lost uh, with Trump in the White House.
1: Do you think that if Trump was in the White House, House, there would be no Ukrainian war. That's true. Why? Ukraine would have capitulated because Russia would have gone unopposed. NATO wouldn't have stood against him. America wouldn't have stood against him. He would have just swallowed Ukraine. Yes, there would have been many, many, many casualties. But uh, the war would already be over. Mm. The war would be over. So in one sense, that's correct. There would have been a, a very brief Ukrainian war. I'll put it that way. No, that's all nonsense. That's part of the delusion. That's part of the disinformation, mm-hmm. uh, part of the outright lies that, uh, that Trump and the Republicans have sold to the American public, to the uh, Republican-voting uh, American public. Um, facts don't matter. And, uh, yes, th- that was something that was put out there. But uh, Trump absolutely was uh, cheering, cheering Putin to go into uh, to Ukraine. So what do they think would have happened if he was president? In
0: fact, you know, he might be in Moldova now. The Baltics might have been rolled over. We could be in a very different situation uh, with a Russian army that wouldn't have suffered the kind of devastating losses that it has done. Uh, to be
1: honest with you, Jonathan, I would not, not be surprised if Trump were president right now. Not only what would you just said have come to pass, I would not put it past Trump and the Republican Party of the United States to have made some kind of a deal with Putin, similar to what happened with Russia and uh, Germany at the beginning Mm -hmm. of World War II with Ribbentrop. uh, Absolutely. You got it. I would not be surprised at all if a similar kind of an agreement was made between Putin and Trump. And I, I sincerely mean that.
0: Mm hmm given all of this and, and and all of this is is unfortunately not so surprising for those who have been paying attention uh, but january the 6th has shown western democracy to be extremely fragile and precious how do we need to evolve it to make it more resilient and even survive f- in, you know into the 21st century
1: of course, I think about that every day, um, as well as millions of others. Um, one of the things in America that's a great failing, in my opinion, is that democracy often works against itself by its very nature. Uh, freedom of speech, for example. I think the one of the biggest dangers to America right now is, uh, uh, of course, social media, but also the toxic uh, public uh, airwaves. You mentioned Tucker Carlson, you know, um, suspect uh, or public enemy number one, if you will, in, in that sense. I, I see no reason in in a in a, a democracy in any nation that wishes to survive to allow uh, treason, to allow uh, people to uh, try to evoke violence, to try to target officials, to uh, incite rioting, to incite crimes, to incite assassination to incite the overthrow of the government. I, I see no no way in a, in, a, in a rational world where this should be allowed on the airwaves. I'm not talking tyranny. I'm not talking dictatorship. The reverse. You will get tyranny and a dictatorship if you allow your airwaves to incite millions of people to overthrow their government and install a dictator, which is exactly what the Fox News is of America and the OANNs and the Breitbarts and all of that are trying to do. And so to answer your question, I think one of the first things that we need to do, that we will not do, by the way, is to get control of the airwaves. Uh, the FCC is a joke, the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees our airwaves. Uh, they're not going to ch- do that. They're not going to allow any of that to happen. They're going to allow all of this uh, uh, violent rhetoric, uh, to continue. They're going to allow people like Tucker Carlson and, and uh, Ted Cruz and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens and the rest of them to incite the mob. And it's a mob uh, for violence. And they're not going to do anything about it. So what what should happen? We should enact laws that would curtail that, which would make them crimes, as they are in, in many countries. Uh, how long has it been in Germany, for example? You can't be doing zig Heil's. Uh, and, and promoting Nazism—it's illegal. Yes, some do it, and when they get caught, they get arrested uh, and they go to jail. We have nothing like that here. We have free speech to the to the uh, to the heavens, and it's killing us. Uh, journalism needs to take sides. Excuse me. I know journalism should be impartial, but when democracy itself, when the nation is in an existential crisis, when it may not exist too much longer, journalism needs to do its job. Uh, I call it uh, whataboutisms and uh, providing both sides of the story. You can't do that. Not. I'm sorry. We're way past that. The Republicans are not equal to the Democrats right now. They're, the Republicans are a party of treason. The Democrats are a weak party trying to uphold democracy in their own way, but they're not the same. And for the journalists, for the media in America to treat them the same is killing us. It's killing uh, democracy, and, and and unless that changes, uh, the Republicans and the uh, the, the Trumps, Trumpists, uh, the insurrectionists are going to win.
0: And of course, this point of view might be labelled as, as as treasonous in itself. You know, imposing limits on uh, is it the First Amendment, the freedom freedom of speech? But actually, if you go back to the pre-Reagan era, there were extremely tight controls and restrictions, weren't there, on you know libelous. Uh, broadcasts. It was much more regulated uh, back in the 70s.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, and now I'm I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the fairness doctrine or whatever that came about in the 70s and 80s, uh, where you were forced, uh, um, uh, um, producers and TV stations were forced to present both sides of something, even if it was wrong. They were forced to give equal time, uh, which is what journalists do now. But you're right. Uh, America's always had limits on free speech. The old saw, the old expression where uh, uh, you cannot f- uh, yell fire in a crowded theater. That limits your speech. You can't do that. Your freedom to, uh, to punch stops at my face. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of expressions about that. So freedom of speech uh, or action in America has never been unlimited and no sane person would want it to because unlimited freedoms uh, are called chaos. And uh, no one, well, most people that I know don't wanna live in chaos. However, that is what the GOP, the Republican Party, is is uh, leading us to. Uh, I don't want to even get into the Second Amendment. Um, we're we're obviously awash in guns. Uh, not a day goes by that we don't have a mass shooting. Uh, it all comes back to to our interpretation of the uh, of the Constitution. Uh, it's a battle right now. of What's called originalists and um, constitutionalists. Originalists believe that everything that was written in the Constitution is uh, like the Bible. It's the Word of God. In fact, they do say that, excuse me, the Word of God. Uh, Even though it was written in the late 18th century, when most of the technology was not even a dream today, everything they said cannot be changed and must stay this way. Um, And they are trying very hard to bring us back 246 years to when the Constitution or the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence was written, and then 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. And they're doing a very good job. And if they succeed in doing that in the next two elections, we will not have America. This will not be the United States of America. It will be some other country. We may even have the same name, but it will not be the United States of America. Let's make that connection
0: between uh, Russian propaganda, influence, active measures and some of these uh, pressure groups that are, I would say, distorting freedom rather than upholding it, uh, it was shown, wasn't it, that that actually Russia had a number of uh, so-called sleeper agents within the NRA and with the GOP establishment. And then, of course, it goes all the way up to Manafort and many of the uh, people involved in the campaign. So this this does seem to be a very uh, contrived uh, campaign, something that's been invested in for quite a long time by Russia. They can't have had any guarantee that this particular investment would come off so that, you know, we must presume that they had other investments in other individuals that ran in parallel with the Trump team. I would have thought.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, many people have already forgotten the Mueller report, uh, mainly because it didn't do what they wanted it to do. The Democrats had built up such high expectations for the Mueller report that it was just going to be a gift from God and that it was going to uh, spell the end of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And when it didn't, uh, they just dismissed it. Look, the the Mueller report had a very narrow focus. And as you said, it uncovered a a treasure trove of connections to the criminal within the uh, the Republican Party, going down to many, many different uh, levels and all the way to the top of the uh, election uh, apparatus for Donald Trump. So they proved very, very conclusively that people were not only acting on uh, on behalf of Russia ideologically, but were on the payroll. We're, we're taking great sums of money from Russia to undermine American democracy. And yes, that was only one uh, uh, narrow focus, uh, very important focus, but it didn't look at the entire United States. It didn't look at our defense industry. It didn't look at our military. It didn't look at our law enforcement or other intelligence agencies. And... <laughs> I can tell you right now, just based on that uh, small sampling on January 6th, uh, we have a lot of Russian influence within our law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and uh, uh, the military. Look how many law enforcement, both current and retired, military, current and retired, intelligence uh, people, current and retired, were involved in the insurrection on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Many, many. I was uh, flabbergasted. I, I, I was amazed, as well as many, many other people, how many people who have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, to protect it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, were in the Capitol that day, trying very hard to kill our elected representatives, trying very hard to stop the free uh, elections to stop the the inauguration of Joe Biden, a legally elected president, to basically overturn our entire uh, democratic system. That makes me more sick than almost anything else. The fact that we have police officers, intelligence operatives, uh, uh, military uh, officers, all the way up to, I think, uh, a few colonels were arrested and, and everybody in between taking part in that, uh, some of them neo-Nazis, Some of them uh, uh, obviously spouting uh, Kremlin propaganda, whether they believed it or not, shows just how deeply whatever the Kremlin has been doing is working. Uh, Just that one uh, uh, microcosm, that one small uh, example to me shows how, how horrible it is. And we just don't have the resources, to be honest with you, to investigate how widespread this probably is.
0: And I guess we'll never know how many of them were directly influenced by propaganda or even had connections uh, with with Russian uh, handlers. Um, Probably a small percentage, but many others will have gone along with it, having failed to notice how radicalized their own side had become or simply didn't realize what was going
1: on. let, Let me just tell you one thing I remember from the 2016 election. Uh, which, as you if you remember, Russia had greatly influenced uh, in in that election. They had a great deal of uh, of influence in that. Um, uh, I think it was MSNBC, maybe CNN, interviewed many many people uh, who voted for Trump who had interacted on uh, several social media sites that CNN and others had uh, looked into and hired investigative firms to look into and discovered that the vast majority of the uh, social media comments that Republican voters were interacting with were coming directly from the GRU, the Russian military intelligence service in St. Petersburg. They actually found the building and the floor of the building where all of these uh, 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 GRU people were operating. So they they proved this pretty well. And CNN and the other uh, news agencies interviewed people, Trump voters, who they uh, found out had uh, interacted with these these Russian operatives, told them they were interacting with Russian operatives, not Americans, not Republicans. And even though they were told and shown the documents, uh, they still said they don't care. They literally don't care if it was Russia that they were talking to. They still support uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party.
0: I mean, we are in a post-fact era, which is uh, frightening, I think, for those of us who... uh... Are interested in in uh, science, evidence, and uh, at least the attempt to to get towards you know truth, such as it is. Um, I think you know so much of this is incredibly depressing. We should probably end on a question that is perhaps got at least an element of optimism to it. Let's assume that sometime next year Ukraine wins. They push Russia back to the borders uh, of 2014. Uh, and expel Russian troops from most of the territory. Whether that includes Crimea or not, that's obviously the big question that we have to sort of wait and see. What we face, however, moving forwards into the future is a fortress Europe, a new Iron Curtain. You know, whether that falls along the legal border with Russia or through the Donbass region, what will this future, uh, you know, line of contact with Russia look like?
1: I think and again, talking optimistically, that we will see a greatly enhanced NATO. I believe that even though they've had to be dragged pushing and shoving and screaming, NATO does realize the danger, for the most part. I do not think they will allow themselves, at least in the short term, to go back to the complacency That they had prior to 24 february i believe they will continue to increase their military budgets i believe they will uh uh, increase their defense capabilities they will build more tanks and and jets and ships and ammunition they will increase their military i believe we will be looking at a fortress europe um which in my opinion is a good thing because uh certainly no matter what happens in ukraine unless uh, Putin is dead or deposed, he's not going to stop. We need this fortress Europe, this Festung Europa. Uh, it's just, it's it's crucial. And even if the Republican Party wins in the midterm elections here in the states, Biden will still be president for two years. And he will support whatever NATO and the EU does, um, even if he has to shame the Republicans in Congress and the Senate to do that. Uh, and, and he will. So at least for the next two years, two and a half years, there will be support from NATO and uh, the United States for doing that. What happens with Putin? Nobody knows. Uh, of course, what happens to him happens to Russia. If he, Even if he loses, as you said, in Ukraine, what will he do? Um, uh, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, it depends how he loses, Jonathan. And we've discussed some options for that. It really depends. Uh, If he loses very, very badly, there will be no Putin. Um, If if it's to the point where he does a strategic withdrawal, somehow uh, saves face with the Russian people, then he's going to regroup. He will not stop. He has put out his manifesto starting in July of last year when he said that Ukraine isn't a real country and that he's interested in basically resurrecting the Russian empire. He does see himself as Peter the Great. Um, whether you want to call him crazy or not, he commands a, a very large military, and uh, the sanctions aren't going to hit him fast enough to uh, to deter him from doing what he wants to do next. He's already got his eyes on Moldova. Uh, George is certainly in, in the crosshairs, and uh, now and he's already threatened uh, Poland many, many times, and the Baltics. He's even threatened you guys there with a nuke, as you know. Uh, I don't suspect that's going to happen. But uh, Eastern Europe is absolutely uh, next. And uh, depending on how badly he's defeated, that's where we have to look. And the only thing that may stop him is a strong united NATO, which at this point, I'm optimistic will exist and will deter him. And I think,
0: uh, you know, led by Eastern Europe, there's a new note of pessimism in that even if uh, Putin loses and is deposed, whoever replaces him could be equally, if not more hardline than, than he is uh, and isn't necessarily going to be someone we can do business with. You know, it won't be uh, Alexei Navalny and a, and a great liberal wave of reformers. No,
1: no. Uh, it, look, it's been proven by many, many people smarter than me uh, that Russia's is not going to change very fast. Uh, I have written about this extensively over the last several months, if not year. Uh, Russia is a basket case. Russia right now is a lost cause, in my opinion. It just is, not permanently, not for all time, but for at least one generation. Uh, they have been brainwashed so thoroughly, and Putin has put his his uh, fingerprints on every part of Russian society and corrupted it so badly that um, there is not going to be any change for the better, even if Putin is deposed, killed, exiled, jailed. Uh, And as you said, there's a good chance that there would be even a a hardliner worse than him that would would, uh, come into the play. And what what would they want to do? They would then want to prove to the Russian people how much tougher and how much better uh, they are than Putin because Putin already has the Russian population riled up for a war for taking over uh, Europe, for uh, resurrecting the Russian Empire. They're ready for this, and make no mistake, they will support a push to uh, resurrect and recreate the Russian Empire, certainly to take back Eastern Europe and try to recreate the Iron Curtain and the Warsaw Pact, something along those lines. They're ready for it. So no, even if Putin goes, uh, the West has to be prepared for a very aggressive and hostile Russian for the next foreseeable future. And of course, we have no capacity to change their minds.
0: We can't reverse that brainwashing. We can't do what was done in uh, Berlin after the war. Uh, and even that took a couple of generations uh, in order to uh, to change uh, hearts and minds in, in Germany. And there's no chance of us occupying Russia to, to do the same. Um, all we can do, I think, is build our defenses and deny Russia the capability to act on its intentions
1: no and not only that Jonathan you're right but the sanctions will work uh, I, I know I said right now they're not doing a lot but they will work if if we keep them and if we strengthen them we will eventually choke uh, uh Russia to death financially or at least have a a great deal of influence on what they do but if the cracks that are already starting in Europe and America continue no of course it won't if we allow China and India and Iran to supply Russia with uh, the food logistics and military uh, equipment that they need no of course not this has to be a, a, an international effort there has to be the sanctions and then the uh uh the the uh, follow up to the sanctions the enforcement of the sanctions which so far to be honest has been lacking uh Uh, Right now, the EU is looking into that. They're having a lot of conferences on that topic, enforcing the sanctions. Hopefully, it's not too late, but eventually that will work. But it's going to take a long time. As you said, we're not going to be invading Russia anytime soon. We can't force the Russians to look at uh, Urban and Bucha and and what they did there, like the Germans were forced to to, uh, see the, the concentration camps. That's not going to happen, at least not for a very, very long time. And Putin is uh, isolating them. He's cutting off the Internet. He'll, he'll go even further in that uh, in the near future as well. So he, he is making a huge North Korea where they're only going to know what they, the government, the Kremlin, wants them to know. If anything, they are becoming more dangerous, not less, regardless of what happens eventually in Ukraine.
0: Absolutely. And anyone who doubts that should see the incredible stories uh, that are being written by uh, Russian dissident journalists at the moment looking into the restructuring of the education system uh, right. along Soviet lines, uh, complete brainwashing from the cradle to the grave, but this time right. not in the service of a communist ideology, but in service of extreme nationalist imperialist ideology.
1: We're seeing the worst of the Soviet Union combined with the worst of czarist Russia, combined with the worst of uh, Putin's Russia uh, in modern technology. We're seeing the worst of all of that because as bad as it was, and you just touched on this, at least with communist Russia, with the Soviet Union, they were trying to pursue an ideology. They wanted to uh, conquer the world for international communism. As misguided as that was, that's what they believed. Uh, they don't have that now. This is pure aggression. This mm-hmm. is pure greed. This is pure tyranny. They want the world to become Russian, the near. And they don't care about anybody else. To them, everyone else is Untermensch, uh, the, the flip phrase of what the Germans used to call the Russians, uh, subhuman. And they truly believe that. At least many, many millions, a great percentage of them do. And unless they are stopped by either... Uh, a a strangling, a strangulation of their economy to where uh, the Russians have no food in their refrigerator. By the way, they refer to themselves as the refrigerator economy. They'll support the Kremlin all the way to the grave, as long as when they walk to the refrigerator, they have food. When they stop having food in the refrigerator, they march on the Kremlin. Well, that's a long way from now. And so they're not going to be marching on the Kremlin, and he's going to make sure they have food. Maybe not as good as before, but enough. And so we're looking at a very, very dangerous Russia, not ideologically driven, purely militaristic to take back an empire, an empire that never was in many respects, but an empire and to crush all who disagree with them. And they have the nukes to back it up.
0: David, that that is a, a truly pessimistic note to to end on. But I really want to thank you for your time and incredible insights that you've provided. And of course, do please keep up your spirited defense of Ukraine on social media and within the intelligence community. Uh, Let's hope that victory comes uh, as soon as possible.
1: Thank you for having me. And I believe Ukraine will prevail.